When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to another episode of Ohio Mysteries Backroads. In this podcast, we explore some of the little-known legends, stories, places, and rumors about the great Buckeye State. We're your hosts, Mike and Dan. So hide the keys, lock the doors, and turn down the lights. The next episode is about to begin. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ohio Mysteries Backroads. I'm your host, Dan, and this is my partner, Mike. Hello, Mike. Hey, Dan. Well, in this episode, we're going to travel to southern Ohio and discuss the Millfield Mine Disaster, which killed 82 men, making it the state's worst mine disaster. Wow, that sounds interesting. So what went wrong here? Well, like all good stories, this one starts with the phrase, here's how it happened. Well, let's hear more. We're honored today to have a special guest with us, and our guest is Ron Luce. Ron is an author of an upcoming book about the Millfield Mine Disaster. Hello, Ron. Well, hello. Glad to be with you. It's good to have you. Thanks for being on board with us today. And Ron's something of an expert of the subject of the Millfield Mine Disaster, and he's going to provide some insights and some stories and probably a lot of things we didn't know about this subject. If you travel through southern Ohio down the lonely stretch of State Route 13 into the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains today, chances are you won't even know the town of Millfield even exists. There's not a lot to remember the catastrophe that rocked the small community to the core. A highway marker pokes out from the brush and the trees that dot the landscape to serve as a grim reminder of the men that lost their lives on that fateful day. Wednesday, November 5th, 1930, was a special day for the 250 miners who were working at the Sunday Creek Coal Company at Poston Mine No. 6. The men were proud of their hard work in an occupation where worker safeties were not always a priority. However, some recent safety improvements that were planned were said to make this among the biggest and the safest in the Hocking Valley region. The day was special because the company president... W.E. Titus, along with other company officials and customers, were touring the facility and examining the recent safety upgrades. They had entered the main shaft and traveled a mile and a half when tragedy struck. Ron, can you tell us a little bit about the tragedy that unfolded after that? Well, it was uh, quite an event. Unfortunately, uh, 82 men lost their lives on that day, November 5th, 1930. There were approximately 220 men in the mine at the time of the disaster. Uh, what happened was uh, there was an explosion, and that, that was caused because uh, a bit of stone or slate fell off the ceiling uh, of a portion of the mine and knocked down on an electrical wire. The electric was alive uh, at the time, knocked the wire down onto a railroad track that they used in the mine for hauling, and that caused an arc. 
Unfortunately, there was buildup of methane gases that, that should have been cleared out, but weren't. There was a buildup of methane gases. That spark exploded the methane. The methane went into flame. The flame hit a lot of excess coal dust that was in the air, and that just expanded through a wide area within the mine. The explosion caused enough force that it blew various parts of the heavy equipment off the track. It bent some of the steel tracks themselves significantly. It uh, caused a significant damage to the men who were in, were in its path. As it passed through, immediately in that kind of an event in a mine, there is something that is called afterdamp that occurs. And it, it is deadly gas that is created by that kind of explosion. And that is largely what killed the men uh, in the mine. I think, uh, as I recall, I don't have the data in front of me, but there were two men who were killed direct by the force of the explosion. There were six, uh, I believe, who were killed by burns and by, by the gases. And then all the other miners uh, were actually killed by the afterdamp. The, the poisonous gas. Uh, it was quite an event. When it occurred, it caused people to come from miles around to, to try to see what was, was happening, how they could help, how they could try to save the miners inside the mine. They had no idea how many were dead initially. It became Ohio's greatest or worst mine disaster, uh, still is to this day. Uh, an overwhelming uh, experience for all of the people, the families, the, uh, the communities as a whole. Did the officials, the company officials, didn't they, weren't they hoping that a problem like this would, would be alleviated a little bit with, uh, when, didn't they install recent, uh, recently install ventilation shafts in, in there to try to help with something like that? Yes, the Sunday Creek Coal Company had just taken the mine over the previous year. It had long been uh, run as post in mine number six. It was uh, owned by that particular company. It, in 1929, Sunday Creek Coal Company took it over. There were problems with the mine. Everybody knew that. They did commit to building a new substation to better control the way the electricity flowed in the, through the mine to run the cars and things like that. And they realized that there needed to be a new air shaft because the mine had become so extensive that the air from the original air shaft uh, wasn't enough to keep the men safe in the mine. So they were paying attention to those kinds of details. Unfortunately, they weren't paying attention to lots of other issues that uh, were going on, and the men were still working in a mine that they knew was gassy, that was known to be uh, problematic in terms of getting the air flowing to the right places in the way they wanted it to go. The men were working with outdated equipment. There were many, many issues that later came through in the investigation that showed the company really knew there were significant problems in that mine. Yes, they were doing two very important things, but they also had many more things to do. In, in my opinion, the mine shouldn't have been opened until they made sure they conquered these problems. But this was typical in mines throughout the country. 
the operators tended to only invest in what they absolutely had to, very little else. So this is an ongoing problem with mines, particularly in Ohio. Yeah, they were doing a few things, but there's so much more that should have been done. So so when these guys were trapped on there, how did they even know where to find them? Did they kind of know where they were approximately? Oh, the miners who were killed. Um, well, they knew they knew the area of the mine that they were in. And, and one of the issues here is that that area of the mine was as far away from the uh, tipple, the main building, the, the main air shaft. That was as far away as you could from that area. So that caused a, a lot of problems. But they knew basically where they were. The difficulty was not so much knowing where they were. It was trying to get to them because of the gases that lingered in the mine. And the only way to get that gas, that deadly gas out of the air, was to keep the air flowing and pushing it out through what was then the new air shaft opening. It wasn't operating, but there was an opening, and they were able to keep pushing that air up through eventually to that area. That was a a major task. You can't just send men in who are going to die from the after damp. So problems that occurred on that day is that there weren't enough gas mask breathing apparatus to allow them to move forward quickly in the mine. They had to move a little bit at a time and then build what are called radishes or barriers so that they could keep the air flowing in the direction they wanted it to flow out ahead of where the where the rescue teams were going it took them a long time to get to uh, the first miners that they found and even when they found some they still had to every step of the way they had to keep building more radishes to keep the air flowing so that's really what held it up as long as it took which was pretty miraculous by the way that they they actually had found 78 of the the miners by midnight of that first day out of the 82 it took a, a tremendous work on their part to on the rescue team's part to get all of those miners out they had also managed to push far enough into the mine Uh, under those conditions to find 19 men who were hidden behind a a portion of the mine. They managed to build up some canvas walls or whatever they used at that point to protect themselves, even though they were near death when they were found, all 19 of them actually survived. Oh, wow. Okay. So, Ron, an interesting point I was thinking of, too. It was my understanding that the power was effectively knocked out by the initial blast. Do you know if that's correct? Uh, that is correct. That's how we know that the uh, the event started at 11.45 a.m. because there was some sort of timer that was stopped when the electricity mm-hmm. was stopped, and we could actually see the time. So when the power was knocked out, that had to further complicate the rescue efforts because now you're without power, you're without your trolley system. Now you're relying on a complete different set of tools that they would need to rescue these people. Can you talk a little bit about what they used for light? How would they travel down there? Were they on foot? Did they use mules? Can you talk a little bit about that? Everything was electric in that mine. A lot of people think of mining, you know, as somebody with a pickaxe and a shovel and that sort of thing. But the reality was that everything was delivered and picked up via railroad tracks. 
uh, it's different from a regular railroad tracks, but that idea. They had to have safety lights that weren't going to uh, ignite the gases in the mine. And those were all available, though the miners weren't given them. The miners actually had lamps with open flames on them. So they went in, and I'm sure they had, uh, it's never described exactly, but uh, I'm sure they had the enclosed mine light that uh, would be safe from causing explosion. Yes, they, in order to get these men out, uh, once they found them, they did eventually bring in horses and mules and uh, whatever they could find to help cart these folks out, cart the bodies out. A lot of men who went down actually physically carried litters, but everything had to be carried in by hand. And walked in. There was, there was, or if they could get donkeys or mules or horses to pull something along part of the track that was still straight, um, they could do that for part of the way. It certainly wasn't going to be an easy task, no matter what. Ron, thank you for sharing this information with us. And one of the, the with the issues that I came across in doing this research was the fact that there was a danger of reignition of other gases or coal dust. Can you talk a little bit about what caused the most destruction? Was that initial blast? Was there another blast that ignited coal dust? Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, yes. I think I mentioned earlier that that was the one of the problems. First of all, when miners go into the mine, it is supposed to have been checked by people who are called fire bosses. They are supposed to have gone into the mine and checked to make sure that everything was safe. For whatever reason, the fire bosses did not find or locate methane gas in the mine. What has been reported is that they were told to not spend their time doing that so much as to help building radishes. Uh, they just ignored that portion of the mine that had a buildup of methane. And that, that occurs in lots of mines. It's not a unique thing here. But ordinarily, that is something that is checked. And if there's a problem, air is pumped into that area and clears out that methane gas. That methane was a, was a huge pocket of, of methane right in the location where this wire fell. What's sad about that is that there was no reason on earth why that line should have been live. That's what a substation do. They could turn the electric off to any portion of the mine that they want to. It was an unused portion of the mine, and the electric was still live. That arc that was caused when that electric wire fell down and touched that metal rail lit the uh, methane. The methane explosion caused flame. The flame just shot out through that portion of the mine and picked up uh, dust particles in the air. In Ideally, in a mine like that, what is supposed to be done is something that's called rock dusting. And that keeps that dust laying down rather than being floating, than floating in the air. It was essentially, if you want to call it two explosions, but it was all triggered by one event. Methane hit uh, the went into flame. The flame picked up the the dust in the air. So I mean that that combination explosion was pretty deadly. Wow! That, wow! That that explosion sounds devastating. And but it's my understanding that this mine reopened a month later, and it was open for like another 
15 years or something? The mine reopened actually 15 days after oh, the disaster. 15 days. It opened on November 20th of 1930. It did continue to operate. The sad thing about all of this is that it never needed to happen. The company was operating with old equipment that was still available from the days that the Poston company owned the mine. It was not it was not equipment that was considered appropriate by the Bureau of Mines. Uh, they knew that the 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 problems with the mine were well known in terms of the buildup of methane gases and things like that, the potential for that. Uh, just there were a lot of things that the company just didn't do. When you get into the investigation that took place afterwards, you find out that the company really did not take uh, very good care of the mine. The miner's safety was always at risk from various kinds of things. You know, I, I keep coming back to the word sad. It's really sad. I, I did not need to happen yeah. if people had just done their jobs. Who, who was held liable for all this? Was the company... Uh, Anybody try to sue them, or how did all that work out? <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's kind of like what you we're, we experience today. You know, the, the the same thing. This investigation, I should say, the investigation that took place was done very thoroughly by the Bureau of Mines, and they brought in experts from all kinds of places to look at the situation, to measure the gases in the mine, to look at the burn areas of the mine to look at anything that that might have contributed to this uh, mess and what happened is they developed a a report and that report uh, very clearly laid out the ways that the company should have foreseen this sort of thing and should have taken care of it the policy for whatever reason for the mine bureau their policy was to give this report only to the executives of the company that they were investigating. The public had no access to the to the facts that were that came out as a result of the investigation. Why would that not be reported? But it wasn't. The, what happened is the people, the widows. Uh, of the miners got a maximum of $6,500, which was the maximum according to law that they could could get for compensation, and they got $250 to bury their, their dead. Wow. That, for a, a miner's wife, would equal about five or six years' worth of income to live. So after that, they were completely on their own. And, of course, some made it last longer, et cetera. It was nowhere near what was needed to care for those families. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Ron, again, thank you very much for your time and thanks for sharing your knowledge with us. Um, 
if I could ask a couple questions here. So I've been familiar with this story for a while. And honestly, one of the hardest things for me is to where to get accurate information. The internet tends to sometimes repeat the same story over and over again. And it's not always accurate. And it kind of makes it a challenge when you're trying to research stories like this. One of the stories on the internet talks a little bit about the walls of the mines collapsing, effectively trapping the survivors inside. Do you know if that's accurate, Ron? And can you share a little bit more about that? No, it is not accurate at all. There is nothing in my research that shows that any of the walls collapsed. What really held up getting to the miners who were caught in that disaster was were the gases. Equipment was damaged. Uh, heavy equipment was damaged. The tracks were damaged. But in terms of the mine itself, uh, the openings in the mine and that sort of thing, none of that was uh, severely damaged. They were back in the operation, remember, 15 days later. Wow. There, it's not like this image of, uh, you know, piles of stone blocking your pathway into the mine or anything like that. that that's just a fantasy. One of the problems with trying to get information online is that there was so much misinformation put out there. There still is because people didn't know where to look for accurate information. One of the things that I tried to accomplish with this task of writing this book is to get past that because I everywhere I looked I was finding misinformation and very many variations on how all of this took place. I gathered my information from the reports of the, the experts who went in and actually looked at and studied what happened, uh, how it happened, why it happened, all that sort of thing. There were a number of specialists who came in, and then they some of them actually had to write formal reports and provide them to the Mind Bureau. I actually have copies of their reports. Uh, I have a copy of the full report that was provided for the company. I have letters and memos that took place between some of the officials. And from all of that, I have pieced together what I believe is the most accurate account of what happened that, that we can find. A lot of the material that came out early on was based on newspaper reports that were wildly inaccurate and on hearsay and and the reports of various miners who talked to other miners who thought they knew what was going on sort of thing i don't think anyone has had actually gone in and said you know what can we prove what what do we know for sure and that's what i've tried to do is to take what at least what was reported as accurate by the experts and i'm sure they missed details too but um all i'm reporting is what i believe can be backed by the factual data absolutely and we really appreciate your research and attention attention to detail can you talk a little bit ron about immediately what occurred after the explosion okay well after the explosion uh, at that point um, as you know, there were 10 people uh, 
who were accompanying, or nine people who were accompanying the president of Sunday Creek Coal Company, and that included superintendent of this mine and another person from the mine. There was nobody in charge. What happened is 119 men were able to get out of the mine. It took them about an hour or so to get out of the mine, but they were led by a man named uh, Robert Marshall. Robert Marshall led these 119 men out of the mine to the to the main air shaft, got them all out, and then he immediately uh, organized a crew of people who would go back in with him and try to look for the others. He did this on his own. He's the only person. He was he was a foreman of some kind, but he was uh, he he didn't have anybody else to count on, and he immediately went about the task of going back into the mine and trying to rescue other people. He, he did that uh, as best he could until uh, uh, one of the investigators from this area, one of the inspectors, Andrew Ginnon, arrived, and then he kind of took over, but he and Marshall spent their time going in looking for the, any possible surviving miners. Later in the day, the main Ohio uh, inspector, Smith, uh, arrived, and he kind of took over. But during all this time, the major focus was on trying to rescue anybody who might still be alive in the mine. Meanwhile, around the tipple, uh, people were coming from everywhere. Miners and their families worry about things like explosions, and they picked up on the sound and then the, the as people learned what was happening, the, the news was spread. So people were coming in, families, friends, loved ones, all hoping to save their, their family member. Um, and then reporters got word of this and they started piling in. Reports went out around the various communities uh, we had doctors and nurses and various people coming from everywhere. And then there were all of these people who were just curious. And what was happening is there were so many people who came flooding into uh, Millfield that people who really needed to be there to help with the search and rescue process and to help with anybody who was wounded or anything like that, couldn't get in because the roads were blocked and uh, there were just so many people. A lot of people had to walk in from long distances and they had to ultimately get the the police, they had to get the uh, National Guard, various people to help in managing these huge groups of people who had descended on the, on the community. But as best they could, those people... Um, managed to survive and to find their way in and to help uh, in any ways that they could. Meanwhile, the Labor Bureau uh, had ordered a specialized train from, that was uh, a rescue train that uh, was positioned in Pennsylvania. I can't remember the town. But they had organized uh, trying to get that rescue train to the site in, in less time than anybody ever could have expected. Uh, everybody cleared the path. They did whatever they could do to get that train to the site until they got to New Lexington. 
in New Lexington, that train had to sit on the side on a side track while the, the whoever was doing the directing allowed a passenger train to go by. In fact, it was stopped I think twice for various silly reasons. So it it arrived quite late. By the time the train actually arrived, all of the equipment and everything that would have been helpful during the day, it was no longer needed. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. it did bring in some of the experts who then uh, did assist in the investigation process. Wow. So it sounds like there was a lot of acts of heroism, even if it was just something as simple getting a train to the scene on time. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's important to remember that that there are a lot of people who will never get the notice that they deserve for the work that was done. A lot of people did great things to try to help in any way that they could. I mean, it it was one of those examples of humanity uh, moving beyond all of the, you know, petty issues that we have between us for various reasons and just coming together and saying we've got a major mess we got poor people who are being you know are going through hell we've got to do what we can to try to help and i think most people did it with uh, a true sense of uh, kindness and a sense of loving humanity and uh, you know that that's part of the specialness of all of this to me one of the things that i think really caused me to go into this is because I've always felt like the the men who died never really got the focus. You know, everybody talks about the disaster. Everybody talks about 82 men. Uh, but they don't. we don't spend enough time thinking about who were those men. You know, sometimes when you use the word uh, coal miner, people have an image in their heads. And they have uh, a set of expectations about the way they are and all those kinds of things. And what you find out when you know anything about the, the men who died, they were husbands, they were fathers, they had hobbies, they, they loved, they laughed, they did all the things that normal human beings do. And they deserve to be remembered for, for that. A lot of the, the information that has been handed down about this event really had misinformation about who died in the mine. Who were these men? And I've seen lists that had 80 people on it, 81 people, 83 people, you know, all sorts of things. I've seen lists that had people who didn't die in the disaster. Uh, So one of the things that I set out to do was to make sure that I got the actual names, best I could, of the 82 men who died. Um, I tried to learn something about who they married, who their parents were, if I could find it. Did they serve in the military? Uh, they have children in the home, those kinds of things. I wanted to bring them back to kind of be in the front of all of this. Because it's, it's a horrible event. But it's more than an event. It's a group of people who died unnecessarily due to negligence. And that's really what uh, drove me to want to do this book. I think you're doing a great job in, in, in keeping this in the forefront of people's minds and, and having people think about this stuff. What do you think is the legacy of this accident? Is it everything you just mentioned? Is there more that we should know and think about? 
Um, well, I think in many ways it's a, um, if I can use the word metaphor, it's kind of a metaphor for, for what we experience in much of uh, our lives today. When the, the goals of big companies and corporations are focused on profit at the expense of workers, um, this is the sort of thing that can happen. Mm-hmm. I'm not necessarily saying, you know, uh, a mind disaster, but when when you don't take care of the people who work, and your only focus is on money, things uh, can fall apart, and people can get hurt. And uh, so I see it as relevant, absolutely, to today. Um, in our society where we still tend to think in terms of putting uh, profit above people. Yeah, I, I think you've got a really great point there. Ron, one of the things that you touched on, and I think it's really important to recognize, is there's a humanity to the story. And that these were people's lives, and these were fathers, and these were brothers and sisters, and these were people that we should remember. And I think that's really important. And you kind of touched on it a little bit. And if you're familiar with Southeastern Ohio, there is a sense of community and how people rally together and help each other. And one of the things that really struck me was that the community rallied in, I think the marker was erected in 1975 to honor the men that lost their lives. But yet that community still rallied every year to gather and remember the people that lost their lives. Yes, Uh, they did until recently. Uh, Most of the uh, survivors uh, have died. The community itself is very small. I believe that the church there still does a, uh, something right around the 5th of November, or that whatever the Sunday precedes it, I think they still have a service of some kind. But it's beginning to fade out of people's memory. And that's another reason why I wanted to have this book available, because, uh, you know, it's, it's a major part of our history, and it is something that should never be forgotten that we have a responsibility to the people uh, who do the work for us and, and make our lives easier and, and that sort of thing. Uh, so I, I wish that there would be a ceremony every year forever. So I'm going to do what I can each year and for as long as I can to at least invite people to come together and and think about the situation and uh, remember those men who died absolutely and ron just one of the the, one of the questions that popped into my head is why was that information kept from the public what what purpose did it serve well i mean think about it Uh, a a major company multi-million dollar company is found to be liable for the lives of these men think about the lawsuits that would have occurred had anybody been able to prove that it was the mine company's fault. Hmm. I mean, in addition to the $6,500 that they gave and the $250 uh, for the burials, think about that in relationship to the potential for lawsuits for all of that. And I think that's most likely uh, the reason that it was kept. And the reputation of the company, of course. Uh, because they they ran lots of mines all over 
the country, but largely in the Northeast. They were at that time one of the biggest coal producers in the in the world, and they certainly didn't want that kind of uh, liability. Wow, what an interesting story. Ron, thank you very much for being our special guest here today. And Ron's the author of an upcoming book about the Millfield Mine Disaster. And Ron, if somebody wanted the book, how can they get a hold of you? Well, the book will actually be out uh, in January of 2024. And it will be published through the History Press. So uh, anyone could go to the History Press website. Uh, But if anyone wants to contact me about uh, particular information, they're welcome to uh, send me an email. So that is luce, L-U-C-E, at rluce.net. The book will be available uh, locally. Uh, pharmacies, local pharmacies, uh, our local bookstores, those kinds of things. But it can, it can also be obtained online through Amazon and through various other sources. The book's title is The Millfield Mine Disaster. And uh, I think with that and my name going online, you should be able to find wherever it's published. Uh, but again, that won't be available until January of 2024. So... Prior to that, I'm happy to to respond to uh, questions that anyone might have. Wonderful. We sincerely appreciate your time, Ron. Thank you very much for sharing your knowledge, and we sincerely look forward to the book coming out. That was that was really great, Ron. Really appreciate your your insight and, and your knowledge of this disaster. It, it's amazing what you know about this, and I'm actually looking forward to reading the book. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, yeah, I I appreciate that. Hello, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more like it, head over to ohiomysteries.com. With over 500 podcasts to choose from, there's sure to be one that's going to keep you captivated. I'm Dan, and I can be found at YouTube at North Coast History and Haunts. My partner Mike can be found at Facebook at Too Late for Autographs. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. That was another episode of Ohio Mysteries Backroads. Stay tuned for more. might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight cisgender white men and the victims of true crime are not a monolith either she's wendy and i'm beth and together we host fruit loop serial killers of color a true crime podcast together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold we also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve at fruit loops we're serving up true crime with a side of history society culture and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.